Shalom, and welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. As you can hear, we're back to regular programming, at least for this week, but we'll still be discussing the ongoing Gaza war with Israel Policy Forum's very own chief policy officer, Michael Koplow, and Shira Efron, IPF's Diane and Guilford Glazer Foundation Director of Policy Research. We'll be discussing the latest state of play in the war, as well as a report Michael and Shira are set to publish early next week on the post-war, quote-unquote, day after in Gaza, which is a hugely important issue. So we'll be diving into that. For those who are interested, do look out for the report, I believe titled, Starting from the Ground Up, U.S. Policy Options for Post-Hamas Gaza, on the Israel Policy Forum website early next week, as the kids say, after it drops. Let's get to Michael and Shira. Hi, Michael. Hi, Shira. Welcome back to the Israel Policy Pod after a very long, but I feel like understandable hiatus. How, how are you both doing uh, after the events of the past two months exactly? We're recording this on Thursday afternoon, December 7th. Michael, let's start with you. How, how have the last two months been on your end? First of all, nice to be back with you guys on the podcast. We have seen each other in person, but uh, we have not been together in audio. So uh, it's it's good to return. The last two months have been difficult and busy, as, as I think they have been for everyone. Obviously, things on my side of the ocean are very different, and you know the, the environment is very different. Than they are on your side of the ocean, and I, I don't mean to compare the two in any way. But if you are uh, a, an analyst of Israeli politics and U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East over the last two months, um, you are very, very busy, and certainly I have been. And within policy circles in the United States, there's all sorts of confusion about. <laughs> what exactly is going on in the ground and and what Israel is up to and what's going to happen next and how you get to that next phase. And within the American Jewish community writ large, there's been this rise in anti-Semitism in very visible ways and all sorts of concerns about what it means for the future of American Jewry and American Jews in various institutions, whether at the universities or, or other spots where we've seen these disturbing trends. So I, I think that while Israelis are still in shock, in the American Jewish community, there are all sorts of weird emotions that are mixing together from solidarity to fear to disquiet. Um, and so it's definitely, it's a, it's a busy time and it's also a very strange time. Certainly understandable and uh, even all of us here on the other side of the ocean are uh, following events uh, back back in the states very closely uh, and are very much aware uh, of the of the discourse and even the actions uh, on the ground in your neck of the woods michael uh shira you're closer to where i am uh how have you been over these past two weeks um all good. two two months rather all good um no just kidding um, so first, you know, good to be with you guys and we talk all the time, but, but here uh, publicly, um, you know, it's, it's as complex uh, uh, personally and professionally 
and nationally, um, and I think near, we're experiencing this, we are still Israel as a society, you know, we're still burying the dead. Literally, they're still like identifying um, casualties. From, uh, and, and today, someone who was uh, considered missing uh, is now um, announced as a hostage in, in Gaza. So we are still like reliving October 7th, in a sense, uh, day and night. Um, and in addition to that, we have obviously the military, the ground and aerial campaign, which takes a toll on IDF soldiers. And, and this is uh, less of a conversation in Israel, but I'm, um, I, I, I'm devastated, uh, by the human toll in, in Gaza and the humanitarian, uh, disaster that is, that is, uh, developing, uh, in front of our eyes. Um, so all these things together, I think, make it for a very, very, very difficult time. Um, personally, because we all know people who are serving in the IDF and we all have friends uh, who are Gazans or, and, or have families in Gaza or work for the international community and they're having a tough job also, uh, those serving on the ground. Um, um, and then mm-hmm. there's also, you know, there's a feeling in Israel that, Israelis and members of the international community, for the most part, they speak across each other because Israelis <laughs> say, how can you not see what we are seeing? Why don't you sympathize with us? Whereas, you know, many members of the international community have moved on or are focusing on what's happening in Gaza on the ground um, and on the death toll there. And it's, 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 it's hard to see how we, we emerge uh, stronger uh, from this uh, I think in every regard, militarily, uh, socially, uh, uh, internationally. So um, um, it keeps us busy, uh, both uh, in, in the moment, but also thinking about what comes next. Yeah, and constant worrying, not only about the current day and what's going to happen tomorrow, but also thinking back to what happened two months ago and then projecting out to what's going to happen say, in six months, a year, or even years down the line as a consequence of what happened on October 7th. Uh, I probably speak for both of you, because uh, it's true for me, that it's always in the back of your mind. It's not just uh, the current day-to-day uh, events and realities as, as immediate as those are. Uh, and we will discuss further on uh, your report that's supposed to come out early next week about uh, the future of Gaza, the so-called day after uh, the war, post-war order. Um, so we'll get to that uh, very soon. And I'll just say, uh, from my point of view, yesterday I was in near Oz, uh, kibbutz right on the Gaza border, uh, arguably the worst hit kibbutz. I think half the people there, or a big percentage of the people there, were either slaughtered or kidnapped. I think it had the most numbers of people taken hostage. And so uh, I was down there with a f- number of uh, other journalists and uh literally shira they're still looking for the dead yeah. uh, you have archaeologists uh going through the debris and the remains of these houses that were burned to the ground uh by by the hamas terrorists and the mob that came through uh looking for any shred of human remains sorry to get graphic uh and you're walking by these uh demolished and burned down homes and you have these little piles of ash and debris and it had to be explained to us that yeah they're sifting through it like it's an archaeological site uh looking for for anything they can to identify people so that's still that's still ongoing it was happening yesterday 
in uh, in near Oz. So it's very much uh, still still uh, front and center. And uh, like you said, Shira, I couldn't have put it better myself. Um, the Israeli conversation is 180 degree different than a lot of the international conversation. Not all of the international conversation, but a lot of it. And if you just consume kind of interna- Hebrew language, local Israeli media, it's a very different reality, really, uh, than what people are getting uh, outside of Israel. Um, and as somebody who straddles that world, I- I'm very aware of that as well. Uh, so just uh, in terms of my own, you know, the listeners of the podcast have heard enough from me uh, over the past two months. It's been, uh, you know, weeks of uh, constant monologues with uh, Shani hosting, which I very much enjoy and appreciate. So hopefully, uh, hopefully you two carry the load uh, this week. <laughs> Way to abdicate your responsibilities. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, ho- I'm hoping, I'm hoping for the best. Um, so the first actual question I wanted to, to pose to you in terms of, you know, the brass tacks of what's happening, where do you both see the war poised at the moment? We're exactly two months in, as I mentioned, uh, Michael, I want to start with you because you have a unique perspective coming to us from from Washington. Where do you see the debate right now in in Washington amongst the administration, the Biden administration officials, and also uh, in America writ large? Uh, now that we're entering month three uh, of this war, there's a, a very, I think, obvious and evident internal debate taking place within the administration about how far to push Israel in terms of its military operation and what the U.S. can do to get Israel to conduct things differently in this new phase in the South versus the North. The concern about Palestinian civilian casualties is real. And I think even more pressing is the concern within the administration over the humanitarian situation. And The U.S. fully backed Israel in the first phase of this war when the Israelis said to Palestinians in the northern part of Gaza, you guys have to go south. And now that everybody's in the south, I think the administration is left with many of the same questions that that outside observers have, where if you're going to conduct operations in the south as they were done in the north, where do the people there go? And that's not, it's not just posturing. And, and I don't think it's just about the political heat that's falling on the administration. People are genuinely concerned and want to hear better and more comprehensive answers from the Israeli government than they're hearing. So, you know, we're at this point where the administration is still in this balancing act where the president obviously wants to support Israel obviously, you know, remains horrified by, by what happened on uh, October 7th. You know, what you were just talking about, Neri, in terms of the, the huge gap between the story that you get if you only read Hebrew language Israeli media and the story that you get if you only read or watch international media. One of the people in the United States who's, who's been doing the most and I think the best job to keep the horrors of October 7th front and center is the president, uh, particularly in the last few days when he's been focusing, as the Israelis have, on the, the stories of rape and sexual assault of Israeli women. So I think that desire from the president to keep on backing Israel and make sure that Hamas is not eliminated, because we all know that that's not really possible, but certainly degraded and hopefully removed from 
real power in Gaza, that desire still exists. But it's increasingly impossible, I think, for anybody here to avoid dealing with all of the humanitarian fallout from the military operation. And we're seeing that balancing act play out in real time. And I'd say it's compounded by the debate going on over anti-Semitism. There have been a couple of resolutions introduced to Congress this week that dealt with the question of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism in different ways. And that also, I think, isn't just a debate about anti-Semitism or, or sort of a theoretical argument. I think that all of it also um, bears on the policy conversation about what Israel can be doing or should be doing and, and how the administration should respond. So, you know, it's, it, it, I, I think that we're, we're in a, a very difficult and, and complex time, not that things haven't been difficult and complex since day one, but everything seems to be coming to a head at once which is why every day there are different reports here in the United States about how much more rope the U.S. is going to give Israel for military operation. Is it, is it weeks? Is it months? Nobody seems to really know. And frankly, I'm not sure that the administration has hard answers to these questions yet. Either. Right. Uh, I think I got into it a little bit last week. And then uh, in the article that I published uh, in the Financial Times uh, this past weekend, where at least from the Israeli point of view, it's going to take at least into the new year, into January, to hopefully, best case scenario, tidy up the intensive stage of the ground operations. Um, so it's a question, right, whether the Biden administration is supportive of that time frame, and then we'll probably talk about this in a second, but uh, the next stage of the war could take many more months and what that would look like uh, in Washington for the administration, especially during an election year. Uh, hold that thought, Michael. Shira, uh, what's your take? Uh, where are we right now in terms of the, the military operation? And also, as you alluded to, uh, the humanitarian situation inside Gaza, which even Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, admits one impacts the other. Uh, as he said this past weekend, uh, you need international space in order to give yourself military space. Right. You need international space to give yourself military space. I will also say that there are... Um, thousands of soldiers inside Gaza who are exposed to uh, public health risks. Um, there are the hostages um, that we know, at least, um, I don't, I don't want to get into specific numbers, but we know there are live hostages that are exposed to this. So, so there are also other interests, but uh, even from a narrow Israeli interest, um, of this will affect Israel. And, you know, the environment doesn't know borders. So any infectious disease, any um, um, animals uh, on the loose, which, which is stuff we're really seeing on the ground, is going to affect uh, Israelis, either the Israelis inside the Strip or outside the Strip. There's also, of course, the international pressure that uh, the international sort of um, approval and legitimacy for Israel to continue its operation and also just doing the right thing, right? The fact is that the civilians uh, and uninvolved in Gaza shouldn't be the victims of this, or at least you want to minimize that uh, to the extent uh, possible. I think of where we are in the military campaign, as everyone can probably read in the news, um, Israel for the most part, not completely done, but for the most part um, has uh, cleared out uh, the north. Uh, 
very intensive military campaign, aerial campaign, plus ground, ground, ground operation. Uh, when I say the north, just for our listeners, you know, the Gaza Strip is sort of bifurcated now into north and south where Wadi Gaza uh, is is, is the mm-hmm. dividing line. So north of that, and this is the Bet Hanu and, and Jabalia and Gaza City and other places. Um, and then there's the central camps. And then um, south, we have Han Yunus and Rafa and all these places. So, so Israel's the IDF is still operating in the north, uh, but in less intensity. And uh, as we're hearing the last few days, since the, the, the humanitarian pause uh, stopped, um, uh, a more um, intense fighting in the Han Yunus area, which is where um, Yihar Sinwar, Hamas leader in Gaza, um, his family is from there. He's believed to be there, not just him, um, 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 much of the Hamas uh, leadership, although probably not on the ground, uh, very deep into the ground uh, in the in the tunnel operation. I Below think ground. that. It, Right. If Israel had its own way, right, if the IDF had its own way, they would probably say like, okay, give me, I'm just speculating, right, but give me one more month to finish the north completely thoroughly. And then slowly I will go to the south and operate there and for a year continue this operation and fulfill my objective. This is not, 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 not. It's, it's, it cannot fly with, with the international community, not even with the U.S. backing to continue at this rate with this uh, death toll and, 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 and damage. And, you know, there's no, the northern Gaza Strip now is, is really un, uh, unlivable. It's not like pl- people can go, for the most part, people cannot go back to their homes, even if they wanted to, right? Because there's nowhere to go back to. So, so um, right. this, 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 this would, if, if, if the IDF gets to do this thing, it's basically, you'd have to build all of Gaza uh, again. Um, there's another thing about it. You know, we talk about the international legitimacy, but Israel is, is a relatively small country. There's not so much margins here. I mean, if you have hundreds of thousands of recruits in reserves now, um, who don't go to work, are not in universities. The universities haven't started the semesters, right? You're going on winter break in the U.S., but there's no one here. The semester here hasn't even started because of the war. So um, uh, schools are, uh, some of them are still out because of the, so So the country cannot be, uh, cannot, cannot continue to run like that. And it costs Israel also a lot of money for a whole year. So I think what we're seeing now is sort of like a, a, going to see a condensed version of that. So not finishing completely in the North, continuing in parallel with intensive military fighting in the South, I believe. And this is what we're hearing from uh, the press that basically the IDF has another sort of month or so to do that. And then we're going to move into less intensive fighting, more, more standoff uh, operations. Um, it's is this going to deliver is this going to get us to where we want to be uh you know um uh, uh, uh destroying hamas's military wing or its ability to govern um very hard to believe that this more limited operation than envisaged uh initially can get there the hope is that in the next month there will be major uh, achievements in the fighting, and then it will continue. So we can't really talk about post-war because I don't think that we're going to be in a place in a month where it'll be like, okay, the war is over, and now we're moving into incursions and and and, and raids as we do. Mm. But in the West Bank, it's going to be much more of a gradual uh, process. I fear a war of attrition, uh, a lengthy one. Um, I hope this fear is uh, is not going to materialize. It's true that, uh, not to undermine the report that 
you both are releasing next week because I think it has great value. Um, you know, you can't figure out uh, where you want to go unless you actually lay it out and then work backwards from from that. So a day after a post-war order is critically important for the reasons that we'll get into in a second. Uh, but it's also the case that uh, for the day after, you need the date to end. And like you said, Shira, to the best of my understanding, and I've heard this firsthand, as I know uh, you both have as well, uh, there is going to be an intermediate stage called, uh, what do they call it, stabilization and transition, or vice versa, transition and stabilization, uh, where it's going to be, like you said, lower intensity fighting, but there will still be fighting going on. Uh, perhaps, like I've heard, maybe into late next year. So we're talking a lot of months. And what that looks like exactly, where IDF forces on the ground will be located, it's still unclear to me, uh, especially if you haven't been able to get into much of the vast Hamas underground tunnel network, which is the real key to uh, to cracking the Qassam Brigades, uh, Hamas's military wing. So Right, yeah. All told, I think I think you're right that uh, the next month, maybe month and a half into January, will be will be critical uh, to see how much progress in terms of Israel's war aims the IDF is able to to achieve, uh, because they don't have all the time in the world as much as uh, certain generals and even certain senior uh, ministers uh, would like us to believe that there is no clock. Uh, there is very much a clock, and by the way, not only internationally. Right. Uh, I after near Oz yesterday, I was still down south, and I went to uh, this junction, not too far away, called Gilat Junction, which has become famous because uh, essentially volunteers have set up this entire operation underneath this tent, where they're cooking thousands of hamburgers and not only hamburgers uh, for the troops. And so I went there, and you're looking at this massive tent with all these, you know, reservists and also regular soldiers hanging out, milling about, eating. Uh, and hamburgers and dessert and fruit salads and everything, even free massages uh, by volunteers. Uh, no money. You don't have to pay for it. And it's a, it's a great, uh, it's a great initiative, right? A lot of, uh, you know, you see all, all gamut, the entire rainbow of Israeli society there where arguably a little over two months ago, everyone was at each other's throats as, as we all know very well. <laughs> Uh, and they're all coming together in a uniform combined with the volunteers. But you're looking around and you start talking to the people. And, you know, one guy is a high tech person from Tel Aviv. The other one is a, is a butcher from, I think, Kiryat Gat, who was, you know, helping make the food. And so both the soldiers fighting and all these volunteers, they have real lives and real jobs. And so this is great that it's been going on now for the better part of two months. But is it sustainable Three months from now, six months from now, a year from now, uh, I I have my doubts uh, just in terms of Israeli society and and just the economics of this place. Right. Um, so remains to be seen. Neri, yeah. before I ask you if you got a massage or not, um, I'm curious. No, just 
just for the soldiers. I just stole, I just stole food from the soldiers. I didn't take their place in, in the massage line. Oh my goodness. Um, I, I also wanted to just like mention another thing because I think Michael spoke about the pressures in the U.S. Um, and I think the pressures are not just from the images and the publics. Actually, I don't know for those of you who followed, but last night, very late last night, Israel time, um, um, uh, Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, really dropped the bomb. He invoked Article uh, 92, uh, 99, excuse me, of the UN Charter for the first time uh, in his tenure. And uh, basically um, raising the red flag over the humanitarian, the collapse of the humanitarian system in Gaza. This is an article that's usually used for like uh, when the world or the UN doesn't pay attention to a conflict or when um, it's related more to the political uh, aspect of a conflict, but it wasn't invoked for Ukraine or uh, uh, or Ethiopia. The last time I think it was invoked was in 1989. And when you think, why would the Secretary General do this? Uh, in a sense, it's clearly to pressure the U.S. administration, also in the UN. So I think um, mm. I think the Biden administration is really in a bind from from all around, not just just internally. Uh, and not definitely just not just with the Dem- Democratic Party, and and this is another reason why this clock is ticking. Right? <laughs> if Israel gets away, it's going to be very very difficult to feed their 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza. You know, move them around from one square to another as you clear territory of Hamas uh, operatives, uh, feeding them, providing them with water, sanitation. Uh, uh, health services when the hospitals are down, this is just impossible. And by the way, I'll, I'll add to that from the U.S. side. It, it isn't, you know, Neri, you talk about how the economy at some point is 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 going to, is, is gonna, you know, it's already bending. At some point it may break if people don't get back to work. And, you know, she was talking about the humanitarian uh, imperative inside of Gaza. I'll also note that the IDF doesn't have the supplies and munitions to just carry this on indefinitely. And one of the things that Israel is relying on is a $14 billion assistance package from the United States, which hasn't been passed, is still stuck. Uh, it hasn't passed the House. It hasn't passed the Senate. There is all sorts of arguing going on about what will be attached to that bill because it's it's not going to be a, a clean bill. And so, you know, in, in the House, you initially had this effort to tie the security assistance to Israel to defunding the IRS. And now there's a fight going on in the Senate about the Israel aid being tied to aid to Ukraine or being tied to changes uh, in in policy on the U.S. southern border. And and that's, I think, so many people assume that the military assistance is, is just coming and People are focused on, you know, are, are Democrats going to try to condition security assistance? There's a bigger problem, which is, can the Congress ever pass <laughs> anything? And this is being held up by that as well. And, you know, there are all these all these concerns about what Israel has to do. And, and a lot of times you don't hear concerns about whether the IDF will actually have the ability to keep on carrying out an operation and the, the you know that's that's another clock that's ticking um, because you know Neri you probably know this much better than me but I'm not sure that that IDF IDF stores of interceptors and smart bombs are um, where the IDF would like them to be. It's a it's a concern. I think the other day it was the two hundredth two hundredth uh, shipment 
of uh, military aid to Israel. Wow. So I think 202 months, which uh, I think by any measure is a lot. But Michael, question to you. So is your concern more dysfunction on Capitol Hill, or is it more the politics of supporting Israel during this time? That Israel has the votes on Capitol Hill, notwithstanding, obviously, uh, major progressive pockets of the Democratic Party who um, are against this war, I suppose. But uh, which one is it, dysfunction or or the political climate? I, my main concern is dysfunction. Certainly, there there is a, a political climate on both sides that isn't necessarily to Israel's complete advantage. Everybody's aware of calls on the Democratic side to condition, put restrictions on assistance to Israel. Uh, but on the Republican side, they're conditioning it as well. They're just not conditioning it on Israeli behavior. They're conditioning it on U.S. changes on the border. They're conditioning it on defunding defunding different U.S. agencies. So that's a form of conditioning as well. It just isn't tied to Israeli behavior. But the notion that you would have had in the past where everyone supports Israel unreservedly and everybody is willing to do whatever it takes to support Israeli security. I don't think you can say that anymore when it comes to either Democrats or to Republicans. There are, there are real efforts to change that dynamic. And for some reason, people only focus on the Democratic side of it. But at the moment, quite frankly, the real holdup is that the Republicans want to tie this assistance to all sorts of things that are unrelated to Israel. And they're perfectly willing to hold it up forever if they don't get what they want. Understood. Understood. And uh, yeah, um, all the focus over the past two months has gone to Israel, but there's obviously still a very important war uh, going on in, in Ukraine. Um, we're not going to turn this into the Ukraine policy pod, but uh, it, it is. it shouldn't be forgotten either, uh, that war as well. Okay, we'll be right back after this brief message. Two months since the horrific Hamas terrorist attacks on October 7th, the immense challenges ahead are still coming into focus. Our policy, community, and next generation leaders are on the front lines in an increasingly hostile, complex, and polarized moment. They need our support, and we need yours. Our policy analysts are providing nuanced insight, commentary, and information to help policymakers, community leaders, and others understand and navigate the challenges of this ongoing crisis. Our community engagement is in overdrive, with constant educational programming for communities and organizations across North America, and an acceleration of our IPFAT programming for young professionals and students on college campuses. Our social media posts are reaching tens of thousands of viewers, with nuanced analysis and insights as an essential alternative to slogans and misinformation. We need your support to sustain this work. Please consider making a gift today to ensure that we can continue to be a source of credible analysis and constructive ideas. Donate now at ipf.li slash support the pod or at the support the show link in the show notes. I wanted to shift to the report that, like I said, you both wrote, uh, and that's supposed to come out early next week about the day after in Gaza. Uh, like we said, hugely important issue that, um, to the best of my understanding, and Shira may, may correct me, a lot of people within the Israeli system and even outside the Israeli system are working on. Uh, it's not clear to me just yet whether the government itself, uh, is taking these, these very, uh, serious 
and very important questions to heart. Uh, we can maybe get into that as well. But Michael, start us off. Um, you lay out five key principles uh, right at the top of the report that guide uh, what you lay out in terms of policy recommendations for what a day after, and especially what a transition to a day after in Gaza needs to be. Um, explain those to us, if you could. Sure. So, you know, what what we're aiming for here um, is, of course, not, uh, not, not a perfect solution. And um, I'd also say that, that even if you took the entirety of this report uh, as one single recommendation, you know, it's highly unlikely that every single thing in here is going to be implemented. But you know what? What we were aiming for in writing it is um, sticking to a bunch of a bunch of key principles. You know, I think the most important is that nobody wants to see a long-term Israeli military occupation of Gaza, where the IDF stays everywhere and, and, and never leaves. Certainly, nobody wants to see Hamas control over Gaza to uh, to stay, and nobody wants to see a vacuum where you basically just have chaos or anarchy. So, you know, we're, we're trying to avoid that. Uh, we're also trying to use this as really an opportunity to make things better in the Palestinian arena writ large, because one of the things that has, I think, blocked any progress, either for Palestinian politics or for Israeli-Palestinian relations, has been this divide uh, between Fatah and Hamas and divide between the West Bank and Gaza. And so in our view, any successful plan that addresses the problem in Gaza is also going to have to address the West Bank and, uh, and think of this as, as one, one large arena with, with two parts, as opposed to thinking about them completely separately. And what that ultimately means is some sort of Palestinian authority role in Gaza. We don't think that that can happen immediately, the, the day that military operations end or the day that major military operations end. But that should be the objective, notwithstanding whatever Prime Minister Netanyahu is, is saying at the moment. And aside from using this as an opportunity to try and get some progress within the Palestinian polity and within Israeli-Palestinian relations, we also think that this is an opportunity to advance the, the trends that were, that were behind the normalization process starting, I was about to say starting with the Abraham Accords, but it really started before that. Because you can you can marshal uh, a regional coalition at the moment uh, to help stabilize Gaza and to make things better in the long term, and if you can get Arab states to have some buy-in, that will of course help with regional integration and help with Israel's relations with all of these states. But you can't just assume that they're going to swoop in and solve the problem. All sorts of things are going to have to happen first, and so we're trying to take that into account as well. And you know, the one big overarching principle that that is behind all of this is that uh, U.S. leadership is necessary. The U.S. has to lead this effort, um, both because it is, at least for now, <laughs> the only the only remaining superpower, um, and it's really the only party that can that can do all these things and can secure Israel's trust to do these things and uh, and get other parties on board. And really, this is why the U.S. exists. When we think about foreign policy and the U.S. role in the Middle East. So, you know, this is a report that is that is because we are an American organization here at Israel Policy Forum geared toward recommendations for U.S. policy. And the U.S. really is the essential actor here that's going to have to take all of these disparate strands that are that are intertwined and extremely complicated. And there are millions of moving parts and try and impose some order on the process and get to a better place on the day after. So despite 
despite America's best efforts, it remains the only superpower. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> exactly, maybe maybe we'll we'll succeed in, in dooming ourselves at some point down the road, but we haven't quite yet. Right, dooming dooming ourselves to irrelevancy, uh, but that would be, I think, uh, a major loss uh, in the Middle East, definitely, um, if not in f- places farther afield. Uh, Shira, you know as well as I do uh, that. Prime Minister Netanyahu, um, on the principles that Michael laid out, you know, he would agree, you know, no Hamas in Gaza, sure. Uh, he doesn't want to reoccupy the Strip, sure. Uh, he also says, you know, I suppose no anarchy or, or, or a vacuum. But Netanyahu has also said he doesn't want to see the PA return. And he also doesn't want to see an international force come in to Gaza. So, my question in terms of getting into like the brass tacks of, of what the report advocates, um, what is left? What is left uh, in terms of at least upholding internal security in Gaza, let alone basic services and trying to mend this uh, humanitarian crisis that's uh, unfolding right now as well? Okay, first, I, I just want to pick on, on what Michael said and just speak about the role of the United States. I think the Biden administration has been the first administration since Bush the father that didn't take a proactive uh, approach to uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And, and, and I, can, I can understand why, right? It usually doesn't work. Um, and, and, but I think um, May 2021 and certainly October 7th events uh, demonstrated um, the implications of just having a reactive uh, policy that affects not just Israel but also U.S. interests uh, everywhere in in the world. So, so I think our report uh, our report urges uh, the U.S. to you know the U.S. traditional rule: uh, thinking big, uh, taking risks, uh, being responsible, thinking in grand bargains. Like I, I think we without the U.S. Uh, none of what I'm going to say now uh, would make any sense. And that goes also to your question. Look, there are no other uh, products on the shelf. <laughs> in Israel, they say neither Hamas nor <laughs> Abbas, uh, nor vacuum. We don't trust the U.N. Uh, we are not going to control uh, Gaza militarily, but we're going to maintain our freedom of operation and go in whenever we want. It's like, what's left? Who's going to come? Even if you imagine as an Israeli that new constructive players are going to emerge uh, from Gaza after Hamas is eliminated and they have no ties to the PA or, or to other uh, terrorist groups and they're just going to start, somehow this thing is going to bob into a central central government <laughs> that runs Gaza effectively. Uh, that is a dream. We have no proof, not just in the Middle East, we're certainly not in the Middle East, but nowhere in the world in a post-conflict environment without major intervention uh, 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 order was created out of nothing, right? It, it's, it's just impossible. It didn't happen in Germany. It didn't happen in Japan, you know, and it definitely did not mm-hmm. happen in the Middle East. If you look around from, from Yemen to Iraq to Syria to Lebanon and all these, this Libya and, and Tunisia and, and where you look. So unlikely it's going to happen here. And so we believe um, that whether Netanyahu and his government likes it at the moment, um, PA a presence in Gaza, a structure that includes the PA, that builds on the PA, um, is, is, is really the only option. Now, there are two things I want to say about this. The first one is that we know the PA is extremely 
uh, weak, it's uh, corrupt, it has no financial resources, the security forces have to undergo reform, definitely the governance piece, it has the prisoners pay and, 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 and you know, what we call in the US, uh, pay, pay for slay and incitement, which is Israelis is, uh, rightly uh, bothered with. Um, so even if Israel if, if had a different prime minister who would say, Ahlan wasalan, please PA, take over Gaza, it, 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 they can. They have no capacity to do this at the moment. So it has to come with uh, an effort to strengthen the PA. On the other hand, to say there's no PA is not going to come back to Gaza is, is kind of misleading to the public because there is PA in Gaza very far after Hamas, but this, this is the second most powerful body in Gaza. And I want to give examples. There are 7,000 uh, PA workers in Gaza who go to work every day. There, there are authorities, the monetary authority. There is the water authority. There's the Ministry of Health, Ministry of Education. You have PA workers. You have PA uh, former workers who keep getting salaries from the PA who don't go to work, but those we're talking about over 20,000 people. You have $123 million in uh, budgetary transfers, uh, monthly budgetary transfers that that the PA sends Gaza. You have um, um, uh, Fatah uh, mechanisms. You have the GRM, the Gaza Reconstruction Mechanism, which is a, an agreement between Israel and and the PA, uh, mod- uh, uh, mediated by the by the UN, that uh, that basically um, puts the PA and Israel on equal footing in terms of approvals of what goes into Gaza and who are the business people who can import. So so the PA is there, and what proposing through, through a yeah. Through a ministry, through a ministry in Ramallah, ministry in Ramallah that has presence also in Gaza, MOCA, the Ministry of Civil Affairs. You have the the MOCA, the Ministry of Civil Affairs, also in Gaza. So you can we can use euphemisms for PA, but the fact is that there is PA in Gaza, and we are not proposing any grand bargain on that part. We're saying let's work very, very gradually with what you have now in terms of PA forces. To, to Gazans, right? It's not bringing the folks from Ramallah to Gaza City. It's building with the, with with uh, PA related forces in Gaza, strengthening all the mechanisms that need. Michael can speak about this, but we're talking about a layer of an international coalition that helps them, um, you know, with with. Uh, provision of uh, service delivery, the humanitarian, uh, the, the humanitarian case, uh, of course, uh, recovery then and reconstruction, uh, many years along the line, um, stabilization, law and order, you'll have an international envelope for this. And side by side, you're strengthening the PA, um, both in, in, in Gaza, but mainly in Ramallah, because one of the concerns is that while we're, we're arguing about whether the PA is going to be in Gaza or not going to be in Gaza, the PA could collapse in the West Bank and you won't even have that product on the shelf remaining. Yep. And a, a huge political and also security crisis, again, not only in Gaza, but also in the West Bank, uh, that this current Israeli government seems to, uh, um, if not be actively trying to stop, uh, in some cases actively trying to uh, <laughs> to foment uh, at least elements uh, in this current government. Michael, uh, what else in terms of your recommendations and proposals uh, relate to, like you said, a more holistic approach in terms of Israel and not only Israel's, uh, Israeli-Palestinian policies, right? So if we're looking at Gaza in a post-war era 
and we're trying to strengthen the PA, um, what more needs to be done in that regard? And by the way, how long is the timeline, right? In the report, you say a transition period of some three to five years. Yeah. So quite honestly, <laughs> nobody knows how long a transition period will be. You know, three to five years is, is somewhere between a, a guess and a recommendation. But part of the need for a, a bit of a, a longer time horizon here, and, you know, in terms of three to five years, as opposed to, you know, six to 12 months, is that if the PA is going to have any chance of being successful for whatever it does in Gaza, aside from the fact that it's going to have to be integrated into it slowly and in phases, it also has to be built up on the West Bank, and it also has to go through reforms of its own. And none of those things are going to happen overnight. And anybody who listens to this podcast knows how long we've been talking about changes that we think have to happen on the West Bank. Anybody who listens to this podcast knows how long we've been talking about changes that we think have to happen internally within the Palestinian Authority in terms of reforms. Everybody should be looking at this not just as a crisis to be solved, but as an opportunity to get some progress on those elements. And when we think about what this means for the PA and the West Bank, as things are taking place in Gaza, we want to see serious Palestinian reforms. And when President Biden called for a revitalized PA, in our view, a revitalized PA doesn't just mean that it gets concessions. It means that it does things that people have been asking it to do for years, if not decades. And that means ending the prisoner and martyr payment system. It, it means replacing it with some sort of need-based welfare. Uh, it means reforming the security sector and the judiciary and ending the, the harassment of civil society groups. It means financial transparency and accountability and uh, all of the things that have been hampering internal Palestinian politics that have been hampering anybody who wants to put outside investment into the PA. It means all of these things. And it also means Israel doing things that make the PA's job easier and that give it some more legitimacy among Palestinians. And here too, these will be familiar to, to anybody who's a, who's a regular consumer of this podcast or, or any other Israel policy forum product. We've been talking for a long time about transferring parts of Area C to Area A or you know, even eliminating Area B entirely and turning the whole thing into Area A. We've been talking forever about how Israeli settlement policy should change, particularly outside of the blocks. We've been talking forever about limiting IDF incursions into Palestinian cities. We've been talking forever about transferring all the tax revenues to the PA that Israel collects on its behalf and not withholding some of them and purposely creating a financial crisis within the Palestinian Authority. So like it is this really, I think, now. Yes, exactly. Like, like it is doing at this very moment. So we really think this is an opportunity on these different fronts in terms of what Israel will do to lessen up on the PA and actually demonstrate to Palestinians that the PA can govern and can operate and, and is a better path for them than the Hamas path. And also an opportunity for the PA to undertake these reforms that it has been resisting for so long, but but that frankly are are 1,000% necessary because neither Palestinians nor anybody on the outside is ever going to treat the PA as completely legitimate and, and viable and uh, and as a, as a good actor until it gets its own house in order. So 
these are all things that um, if, if there's going to be any real PA role in Gaza, these all things have to be addressed outside of Gaza. And um, if they aren't, then then it's not just going to be it's not just going to be a PA problem. It's going to be a problem across the entire Palestinian arena. And I may add uh, inside Israel and for Israel, uh, first and foremost, and I tried to tee you both up to say it, but I'll just say it uh, yeah, <laughs> myself. So. Um, a lot of these things, a lot of these things, will not happen under the current Israeli government. That oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like you hear this, you hear this uh, from within the Israeli security system. You hear it from very senior, uh, shall we say, foreign diplomats. Uh, you hear it from people inside the Palestinian arena as well that in the midst of uh, of this devastating war and people rightfully talking about what will happen after because all wars end, uh, one of the, I guess, necessary preconditions for any positive movement after the war ends will be a different Israeli government. And right now, especially the current prime minister, still thinks he has a political future. So he's kowtowing and acquiescing and giving everything to his far-right political allies like Itamar Ben-Gvir and Betzalel Smotrich, um, which, as we've talked about, or at least I've talked about uh, through my soliloquies to Shani, uh, he he doesn't want to break with them because he still thinks he can survive uh, in future after October 7th. And that's really harming the overall Israeli war effort. It's harming stability on the ground in the West Bank. It's harming Israel's both regional and international standing, and on and on and on. And so uh, that also very much has to change as well. Shira? Yeah, please. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I agree with you but, that the big thing and, and the PA leadership, um, you know, is not going to come publicly back to Gaza at the moment. There's There are problems in Ramallah and there are problems in Jerusalem in that regard. But I do think that there are things we can do that are below the threshold of what you would call full, and we, we described some of these steps in, in the report also, that frankly, you know, provide the Israeli leaders, uh, the, even the prime minister, with the ladder to climb. You know, Israelis and Palestinians are very good at, like, uh, climbing trees and then <laughs> trying to find uh, ways to come down. Um, you know, uh, when we talk about the humanitarian issue, which has become a very important issue also for Israel for the reasons we discussed before, involving the PA um, offices uh, with which Israel deals with day-to-day in the humanitarian effort is a way to start testing uh, the abilities and the credibility of the PA, putting some of the onus of responsibility on them, uh, demonstrating that the sky doesn't fall when the PA actually does stuff for Gaza. I'll give you an example. Even I don't know if our listeners know this, but, you know, Israel... Um, um, at the beginning, said that uh, the Palestinians in Gaza would not get a glass of water, but but very quickly uh, uh, thereafter uh, opened back uh, two uh, pipes of water that provide uh, uh, most of Gaza's potable water at the moment. Um, and guess what? When the when the pipes on the side on the on the Gazan side uh, break down and there are malfunctions, Israel coordinates it with the the Palestinian Water Authority in Gaza. 
There are workers there. You open a, a safe zone for them. They go, they fix it. I mean, more of that can be done. As the next stage, at, at, at the moment, everything goes into Gaza. All uh, imports go into Gaza. Uh, the humanitarian system goes through Rafa in Egypt. But there are, there are real limitations when we talk about uh, uh, increasing the the number of trucks that go in. The bottleneck is actually not in this Israeli security uh, checkpoint. It's 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 it's, uh, it's in a. Uh, uh, on the Egyptian side. And at one point, there's a lot of pressure, U.S. pressure on Israel to open its crossings um, uh, with Gaza. Who's going to man the other side of the crossing if it's not an Israeli occupation? You can bring in um, the Palestinian security forces, but not, not, n- not the armed you know, officers, nothing with visibility, but you're talking about like border uh, and customs police. Israel works with them uh, regularly, mm-hmm. and you need them. Uh, at the moment, you have Hamas still on the Rafa, uh, on the Gazan side of Rafa, the crossing uh, with Egypt that will have to end at some point. And who's going to be there? Uh, Indonesia? I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, there needs to be someone <laughs> who, can, who can work with. Um, and so I think that with all due respect to us saying, and, and this is where I think uh, the military, the professionals here, the civil servants, the military uh, uh, ranks, uh, this is where they can challenge the political rank and say like, okay, you can deal with the big thing, fine. But here are um, ways of moving forward uh, toward a stabilization uh, phase, uh, incorporating elements of the PA, which frankly helps Israel enlist international support and the UN, right? It's much easier for the UN to do these things for, for Israel's request if the PA is involved, because that's the legitimate government of the Palestinian people uh, in the eyes of the international community, in the eyes of everyone but Israel. So... Um, <laughs> I think there, there are ways to do things and explain, instead of saying, why not, uh, let's focus on how, how, how to move the ball forward. Yeah, and I just, I just want to kind of jump on top of this. There's all sorts of magical thinking going on everywhere. You know, on, on the Israeli side, we, we, you know, we, we, as, as mentioned earlier by, by Shira, there's this magical thinking that uh, there won't be Hamas and there won't be the PA and Israel won't stay there and somebody else will just swoop in and, and deal with the problem. And uh, the humanitarian crisis isn't actually going to be a crisis that'll it'll somehow get dealt with. And you know, on the PA side, that that the PA is is, is going to get everything it wants, and uh, you know, the US will the US will drop any objections that it has to PA behavior, and and will recognize unilaterally a state of Palestine, and will somehow cancel the Taylor Force Act, and the Palestinians don't have to do anything, and. Uh, and that all this will just move forward with with Netanyahu because he's he's gonna have to he's gonna have to battle reality at some point. And you know, within Netanyahu, this magical thinking that he's somehow going to remain prime minister when all of this is over. And um, everybody needs to everybody needs to I think take a step back, understand that there are no magical solutions. That whatever happens is going to be messy, and it's going to entail things that everybody objects to on all sides in some way, shape, or form. And Let's all figure out how to move the ball forward in some way that is net positive and understand that not everybody's going to get everything they want. In fact, nobody's going to get everything they want because that's just impossible. Impossible, especially uh, with a an issue as complex as Gaza. And it was complex, by the way, even before October 7th, and now it's uh, a million times more difficult uh, just given, given the reality on the ground uh, inside the Strip. Uh, this was a good transition to my last question. 
let's say uh policymakers in Israel, in Palestine, in America, and other places uh, foolishly do not follow the recommendations put forward in your report. What's, uh, what's the worst case scenario that we're looking at here? Uh, Shira, would you like to start us off if, if this all goes, uh, as the Brits say, pear-shaped? Oh, um, okay. I think there are, there are many uh, bad outcomes. And in a sense, this war is, is terrible also, right? Um, I think the one we started with, where there's just a prolonged, you know, war of attrition um, for years, and Israel has experienced this, right? We've seen this before. We've seen it in Lebanon. Uh, this is one, 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 one uh, terrible scenario where Israel is dragged into this. And, you know, <laughs> it's not just you break it, you own it, you own it, you own it, Right. Um, despite Israel's uh, uh, disinterest, uh, you know Israel's not not interested in uh, in, um, in um, a military rule over Gaza. But um, if it's if it's going to look like occupation, it's going to be occupation, and uh, it would mean also providing for this for the services, including everything for the 2.3 million Palestinians uh, in Gaza. So I think a combination of a war of attrition, uh, including being dragged into an occupation um, is would be a really terrible outcome. It could be um, a compounded by a, a collapse of the PA in the West Bank, uh, which would open another front for Israel. I'm not even going right to the north, to the Houthis, to Iran. <laughs> I'm staying just within our uh, borders. Um, so I think this this is this is quite a quite quite a bad scenario. I'm sure I'm sure Michael can top that though. I was having a conversation yesterday with with someone uh, and debating as to what is the worst scenario is the, is the worst scenario that Israel just stays in Gaza forever and permanently occupies the place and deals with an inevitable counterinsurgency and, and basically never, ne- never leaves and is constantly being bled or is the worst case scenario that Israel withdraws and Hamas is still in power and we're in this, this constant war of attrition situation that she just talked about, and either of those would be terrible. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure which is worse. I actually think that probably option option A is worse, but both of them are bad, and either of them is. I, I'm, I'm afraid, even likely, because Hamas still obviously has a huge presence inside of Gaza. And there is this question about how much longer the Israeli military operation can go on. And if the Israeli government refuses to think about the day after and puts all sorts of obstacles in front of different options, then yeah, Israel is just going to have to potentially stay there forever with no exit strategy. So, you know, the worst case scenarios are really bad and, they shouldn't be dismissed or discounted as as being unlikely. You know, I, I think at the moment they're all too frighteningly likely. And that's why it's really imperative to work so hard towards something else starting now and not waiting until the operation is over. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, it requires not only planning and thinking right now, but actual action right now, which uh, doesn't seem to be to be forthcoming. Even now, entering the third month of of this war, uh, as we try to do on this podcast during uh, this wartime period, we try to end on a more positive note. Uh, I don't want to leave listeners with just uh, the worst case scenario, doom and gloom in terms of uh, 
post-war Gaza. Uh, so I'll just say that we all should hope that uh, more sensible heads prevail, uh, especially at the very top where policy is is decided upon uh, in not letting politics, uh, whether in Washington, in Jerusalem, or Ramallah, get in the way. And my more hopeful note is that, uh, if you can put it this way, the fighting is still ongoing. So a lot of what we're talking about right now will be dictated by events on the ground, I would argue, like we said, over the coming month or two. So uh, a lot remains to be seen in terms of transitioning to this transition period and then after that, any kind of post-war order. Um, so there's still time to set in place, basically, uh, a more sensible plan for the day after. Right, and and Mary, I I, I do think uh, it's 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 important. First of all, I you know I just just I just got a push that you have like dozens of of Hamas uh, militants that just surrendered uh, in northern Gaza. You know, we might we might start seeing maybe not with the core leadership. Uh, but but some some breaking point with with Hamas, the military campaign could could achieve uh, its objective. Partly, we we should not dismiss of 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 of, of the IDF's uh, operation, which is uh, according to all reports uh, going pretty well. Right, so we can talk about this. I think um, despite uh, Israeli government reluctance, you know, to say the words that the international community wants them to say or uh, uh, vetoing what the international community wants to say. We know for a fact that um, in every office in Israel now, there is thinking about the day after and the dilemma is, 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 is how to, to, to present uh, sort of the trade-offs and, and, and the viable options going forward. And it's not just in Israel, it's in the U S and in Europe and other places as well. I also think that the UN and Israel are really not at a great point now, but um, there are reasons to believe that with some personnel changes uh, that are forthcoming very, very soon, there's going to be a rapprochement, at least between some Israel and some parts of the UN, which would let, you know, hopefully the humanitarian effort uh, improve. So so we shouldn't have, it's not all uh, doom and gloom, uh, but it requ- requires uh, heavy lifting and uh, maybe sadly for the Biden administration, it's, 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 it's all on, it's all on them. And also, let's not forget, as we're thinking about reasons to be optimistic and reasons to be hopeful, there are 80 Israelis who are now at home and, and back with their, their family and their friends who a few weeks ago were being held in absolutely unimaginable, horrific conditions. And, you know, if you, if you want to, if you want something that will cheer you up, go and find the video of uh, Amelia Aloni, one of the kids who was held and released um, going back to kindergarten a couple of days ago for the first time and the reaction she got from her teacher and from her friends. And, you know, I, I, I dare, I dare anybody who's, who's listening to this podcast to watch that video and not have some sort of emotional reaction immediately. Um, so that's a positive and it's something that everybody should, should celebrate and, Hopefully, there will be more scenes of right, that. In right, right. It's not just Israelis. We also mentioned mm-hmm. the Thai workers and 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 other some some foreigners who sort of got into the mix yes, of this of and are also home safe with their families. Um, super important. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, even just a few weeks ago, the notion that over a hundred hostages who were seized on October seventh would actually be released 
um, seemed either unlikely or like a pipe dream. And now they're, on the whole, uh, back home and safe. Uh, they obviously, for many of them, still have a long way to go. But uh, we don't really know uh, what tomorrow brings, let alone a week from now or a month from now. Uh, which is, by the way, a nice sum up. Uh, you two, I'm sure, remember, as do our avid listeners, that usually at this time of year we have we have a uh, end of year uh, award ceremony uh, on the Israel Policy Pod, and this year I decided to skip it because uh, you know choosing winners and losers from the year 2023. I think uh, we're all losers just given uh, what's happened here uh, over the past year. And uh, we also give predictions on that end of year episode. And I, you know, I'm not about to, to give predictions, like I said, about what's going to happen tomorrow. So uh, in lieu of that, uh, we recorded this episode. So with that, Michael Shira, um, tonight is the first night of Hanukkah. So Chag Sameach. And uh, if I don't talk to you beforehand, uh, happy and healthy upcoming 2024. Hanukkah to you both and uh, ditto, Neri. Thank you. Thank you. Happy Hanukkah to everyone who does are celebrating. Um, stay safe. Bye, guys. Bye. Okay, thanks again to Michael Koplow and Shira Efron, as always, for their generous time and insights. Also, special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work. Tis a season, as they say, so with the holidays and end of year upon us, do consider making a donation to Israel Policy Forum so it can keep being a credible source of new analysis and great ideas, if I may say so, on issues we all care deeply about, including this podcast. And most importantly, please remember to subscribe, and thank you, thank you for listening.